Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Paula Newton sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And here is what you need to know right now. A major pushback. Former UK Prime Minister John Major tries to stop the government suspending parliament. Released on bail, two Hong Kong democracy activists are free again after being arrested. And Florida, of course, now bracing for Hurricane Dory. And the storm is growing ever stronger as it heads for the coast of the United States. It's Friday, and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move. It is the late summer rally edition. I know it took me by surprise as well, but futures are solidly higher and pointing to yet another strong open for stocks. Now, guys, we appear to be, of course, now in a much better place than we were just last Friday. I know that seems like a long time ago, but remember, trade tensions hit a boiling point at that uh, point. And when the U.S. president decided that he was going to call President Xi the enemy, remember that? And of course, the follow-up to that is the Nasdaq dropped 3%. My gosh, it seems so long ago, especially when you look at that board and we are positive across the boards. We, of course, have cooler heads uh, that seem to be prevailing here. Both sides appear to be preparing for those new trade talks. And for the week, this is important to keep in mind in terms of perspective. U.S. stocks are on track to post their most solid gains of around 2.5%. It will be the first week of gains, though, on Wall Street this month. That gives you a sense of the kind of volatility we've been dealing with. That said, new U.S. and Chinese tariffs are set to go into effect on Sunday. Yes, folks, it is already September 1st, and that should mean increased costs for U.S. businesses and possibly, possibly higher prices for consumers. Remember, we're factoring in uh, the devaluation of the Chinese currency and all of that as well. Two big retailers, Best Buy and Abercrombie, warned yesterday of the toll that tariffs are taking on their bottom lines. And shares of chipmaker Marvell Technology are set to drop today after a Q3 profit warning. Now, it's being hit hard by, of course, that Huawei ban, which remains in place. Further trade-related warnings could be coming soon after that Labor Day break. But for now, the U.S. consumer remains apparently in a really good place. You know, new numbers out today show personal spending rising a very strong 0.6% last month with the Fed's preferred index of inflation well below, and I mean well below, that 2% target. Over to Europe now, stocks are finishing up the month uh, with gains. Asian stocks uh, finished mixed to close out a horrible August. Again, perspective here, folks. Chinese stocks fell more than 2% this month, but that Hang Seng fell almost 9% as, of course, those anti-government demonstrations hit the Hong Kong economy hard. And that brings us right over to our drivers for the day. And we begin in Britain, where former UK Prime Minister John Major is backing a legal challenge to stop the suspension of Parliament. Major is a Conservative. That means he's from the current Prime Minister's own party. But he believes that Mr. Johnson is trying to prevent Parliament from opposing a no-deal Brexit. Bianca Nobolo joins me now. That no-deal Brexit is the litmus test there. And Bianca, everyone is weighing whether or not this kind of effort has any traction. Does it? And even if it does work, what then? 
Well, the first question of whether or not this could gain traction. If we think back to 2016, Gina Miller, one of the people who put forward this application to the courts, she was successful in her attempt to try and thwart the government from invoking Article 50 on its own. She wanted to make sure that Parliament needed to legislate in order for the UK government to trigger the beginning of its exit from the EU, and she was successful in doing so. So this is being led by her, and now John Major, the former Prime Minister, is getting behind it too. Interesting also that he's wading into this because back in 1997, he himself came under quite a lot of political fire for actually proroguing Parliament, his critics said, to avoid the publication of an embarrassing report, which would have been harmful to his government. The question of what impact it would have if it was successful. It would be huge. We're already in uncharted territory. But essentially what this would mean, it would mean that Parliament wouldn't be suspended, but also that the advice that Boris Johnson had given to the Queen when he asked her to prorogue Parliament was unlawful, which again puts the monarch in a very difficult place. So all of this is very prickly in terms of the Constitution, and we'll have to wait till next Tuesday to see whether or not um, the courts decide that the merits of the case are in favour of those that would like to see Parliament not suspended. Paula. Yeah, and the point is that it gets us further away from the issue at hand. I mean, sooner or later, the Prime Minister does, in fact, have to face the Parliament. While all of this is going on, would it indeed strengthen or weaken Britain's hand as it goes back to a very reluctant European Union to try and negotiate that Brexit deal? As ever with Brexit, Paula, it entirely depends on who you ask. So if you ask the Prime Minister or key members of his government, they would say that taking this position, that really demonstrating that they mean it, that Britain is ready to leave without a deal, that they'll do whatever it takes to make Brexit happen, that is a key component of getting the best possible deal out of the EU if, in fact, they can. In fact, Boris Johnson has been speaking today about this. Let's take a listen. I think our European friends have understood one or two big points in the last couple of weeks. I think they get that the UK is really going for a deal. They understand that. But they also understand that the UK is absolutely willing to come out without a deal if we have to. They understand that too. And, and we're serious. We're totally serious about both propositions. And I think what that's encouraging is progress. Paula, the stakes in this is so high, even though Johnson and his government might argue that taking a really firm line on this, preparing to exit without a deal, proroguing Parliament, might be the only way to demonstrate how serious Britain is and therefore get a better deal out of the EU. Obviously, opponents within Parliament, those who'd like to see Britain remain or have huge amounts of trepidation about Britain leaving without a deal, think that this is a constitutional outrage to prorogue Parliament. They don't think it's the best way to secure a healthy exit from the European Union, if an exit at all. So everybody's coming at this from different angles. But I think, Paula, even though we're talking about the impact of the courts on Brexit, it's unlikely to be settled there truly, because at the end of the day, this is a political issue. And court cases, economic forecasts and so on will be harnessed by the political actors. So really, it will depend on where the lawmakers end up on this and where the political will is. That will be the determining factor.
Yeah, and that political will to be determined by Parliament. Boris Johnson very clear mm -hmm. there, in fact, quite strident, saying our hand is strengthened if we tell the European, we, Europeans we are going out uh, with or without mm -hmm. a deal. Our Bianca Nobolo, as usual, you will have your work cut out for you for the next few weeks. Really appreciate your time. Now, authorities in Hong Kong have charged one of the territory's most prominent pro-democracy activists as they clamp down on anti-government protesters. Police have also banned a planned rally on Saturday for the city, as the city heads into what will be the 13th consecutive weekend of demonstrations. Our Paul Hancocks has more. Police here in Hong Kong say that they have arrested more than two dozen people since Thursday night in relation to the recent protests, including this time around a number of prominent uh, pro-democracy and anti-government activists. The most well-known out of these is probably Joshua Wong. He was one of the leaders of the 2014 Umbrella Movement. He has been very vocal this time around as well and has been arrested a number of times and served prison time. Now, on this particular occasion, please say that he has been charged with organising, inciting and participating in an unauthorised assembly. Now, he has since been released on bail along with a fellow activist and he spoke to journalists once he was released. I urge international communities to send a clear message to President Xi. Sending troops or using emergency ordinance is not the way out. We will continue our fight no matter how they arrest and prosecute us. It's worth reminding ourselves, though, that this is still technically a leaderless movement. Uh, the, the movements, uh, the different groups involved wanted this to be the case so that authorities couldn't just... Uh, take one particular leader into custody and then cut the head off the movement. It is still very much uh, being led by people on social media. Now, another development this Friday, we also have a report from Reuters saying that the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, had suggested to the central government in Beijing that they do agree to one of the five demands of the protesters, that they completely withdraw this controversial extradition bill, which is where these protests started. Now, according to Reuters, uh, they say that uh, that the Beijing government rejected that and said none of the demands should be agreed to. Now, we do have calls into Carrie Lam's office. We've also called the, uh, the Hong Kong-Macau Affairs Office for confirmation. If this is confirmed, though, it would uh, show the protesters that what they believe is happening is, in fact, true, that Beijing is pulling the strings uh, behind uh, the Hong Kong government and this one country, two systems is under threat. Now, looking ahead to Saturday, we were expecting a very large rally uh, from one of the, uh, the main and most peaceful uh, protest groups, but that has been denied by police. They say that they're worried about civil unrest. So that particular group has not called for its supporters to come out onto the street. They say they can't guarantee their safety. But what we could see is a number of people coming out anyway. Now, police have said that if that happens and if it is peaceful, then they will act accordingly. They have also said, though, that if protesters do decide to be violent, they will take appropriate action. Paula Hancocks, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, Google says it has found evidence of what it claims is a sustained hack of iPhones lasting years. It says that some websites were exploited to implant malicious software onto unsuspecting users' phones to gather contacts, images, and other data. Our Anna Stewart has more. Not exactly sure why I'm surprised, but these things never fail to surprise me, especially in terms of the scope. How did Google detect this, and what are the implications? 
So they were the cybersecurity analysts that work for Google, and they posted today, which is how it's all come to light, but they actually discovered this vulnerability back at the beginning of the year. They told Apple on February the 1st, and by six days later, Apple had updated their software to fix it. Now, it's interesting because it's not the phones themselves that were hacked as such, it's websites, unnamed websites that receive thousands of visitors every week. And when an iPhone that was vulnerable visited that website, essentially some sort of security implant could be implanted onto it by a hacker who could then access, and as a long list, your contacts, your photos, your location, data from apps like iMessage, WhatsApp, Telegram, Gmail, Google Hangouts. And Google says that the group that were behind this were there for about two years, a minimum of two years, they believe. And we just don't know what the scope of it is at this stage. Um, and I think what's particularly... Well, apologies there. We seem to have lost Anna. That doesn't happen uh, frequently from London. Uh, but as she was saying, there were problems with the detection of this. I think, Anna, in terms of what you were saying, uh, the issue is two years how are we only learning about this now? And this is on the heels of many different data and privacy breaches. Yeah, it took a long time to come to light and Apple were quick to fix it. But what's quite scary is how we're only finding about it now. And what we don't know, and there are so many questions and we haven't heard back today from Apple or Google is, you know, was the data actually successfully stolen? If it was, what has it been used for? Is it still out there? Who was impacted? Was I hacked? You know, what were the websites that are named? We just simply don't know. All we can tell people at the moment is to make sure that your iPhone software is always up to date because Apple continually finds these security flaws. They patch them up. They put a new update out. This one was patched up in February. That was iOS 12.1.4. Right now, you should be streets ahead of that. If you go to your iPhone, go to your settings, go to general. About my iPhone, you should currently be on 12.4.1. What is so important to remember is we don't know what the security flaws are right now. They are continually being patched up. You don't want to find out months down the line that potentially your iPhone has been hacked because you didn't keep it up to date. Paula? Okay. 12.4.1. Okay, I'll check it after the show. <laughs> and a very good information there. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Someone hacked your live shop, by the way. Go look into that. Thank you so much. <laughs> We are now moving on to stories making headlines around the world. Hurricane Dorian is gaining strength as it heads towards the U.S., now a Category 2 hurricane. It's on track to hit the Florida coast. Yes, the Florida coast as a Category 4 early next week. Now, just in the last few minutes, Florida's governor urged residents to be prepared with food, water and fuel. This timing, of course, couldn't be worse for local businesses as the hurricane is hitting the state over the Labor Day holiday weekend. Our Nick Valencia is on the ground there in Daytona Beach. Uh, Nick, glad to have you with us. I'm going to get first to some of the safety concerns and then we'll just talk about the impact uh, from this weekend. But Nick, you know, the big issue here is whether or not there will be a large scale evacuation, if there needs to be that evacuation. And then will people listen? Are they inclined to listen that they need to leave? It's something that was talked about yesterday, Paula, at a news conference that the governor gave saying that there are no mandatory evacuations just yet. But if you have that gut instinct that you want to leave, they say leave now and don't wait until everyone else is leaving. Because what will happen is ultimately everyone leaves at the same time. Those roads are clogged and packed. And it's going to take longer to get out of here. These are nervous times. These are, you know, normally what happens during hurricane preparations. We're seeing that going, going on around here in Daytona. Some businesses have boarded up, not a lot. Some homes have boarded up, not a lot. Uh, but the fear, of course, 
course, is the economic impact. And I want to bring in Martin Allen. He is somebody that is going to be impacted by this storm. How are you, Martin? Thank you so much for taking the time with CNN International. You run an aerial advertising agency. This is a big weekend for you guys, Labor Day weekend. A lot of people on the beach, but this weekend, not as many people are going to be on the beach as you guys may have anticipated. Well, the three big weekends for us are Memorial, Fourth of July, and Labor Day weekend. Just crowded beaches. This is our target market. This is a big one for us. The whole Florida market is one of our largest, the whole southeast of America, and particularly the Florida area. So, yeah, this one's going to hurt. In terms of, of, how, of how bad it will hurt financially, I mean, can you put it into numbers, how much money you're expecting to lose out on? Well, we're certainly talking thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars for this big weekend. But the other issue that we have is potential damage that will be done sure. to uh, possibly airplanes flipping over, hangars, equipment that's in there. Um, some of our pilots will have to move their airplanes out of state. There's a cost involved in all of that. So it all adds up. This is, this is a tough one. You've been through this before. You were talking to me off camera just a little while ago about the impact that Hurricane Andrew has had. Yesterday, a resident equated their anxiety to Hurricane Andrew. Are you anxious as, as somebody being here in the area? I know you're planning on leaving, but do you have any anxiety about the news that you're seeing? Well, the truth of the matter is I'm not anxious, but it's out of ignorance because I have never experienced anything like this before. And from my point of view, we're flying back to Boston tonight, so we'll be gone. But, um, yeah, I mean, it gets my attention. But certainly the financial aspect is the big one that's, uh, that's going to hurt us. Well, we hope it's not too big of an impact on you, Martin Allen. Thank you so much time, uh, for taking the time with CNN International. Good to hear you. All right. Uh, Paula, so you know that there is some nerves here, residents and tourists alike, and, of course, business owners who expect to feel it in their wallets. Paula? Yeah, and it's not bad enough that they're dealing with the fact of if they have to evacuate or not, but obviously worried about their livelihood on a very busy weekend. Arnick Valencia there uh, looking at the effects of this storm. Really appreciate it. Coming up right here on First Move, time to talk. Former U.S. Ambassador to Singapore, David Edelman, joins me to discuss what's next for the U.S.-China trade war and questionable marketing. Cigarette maker Jewel in the spotlight over allegations of marketing to minors. You don't want to miss this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange, which should be a low-volume day. We'll see how it goes, as right now, everything is still solidly looking like a higher open for U.S. stocks. Now, all is quiet on the trade war front as well today, and that is helping that market mood, right? No news is good news. Volume could be pretty quiet, as I was saying, though. We are headed into that long holiday weekend. Stocks are on track for a winning week, though. August, you know, to be honest, it was pretty rough for the bulls, but it's ending well. The Dow and the S&P are down about 2% for the month so far. I'd say that's not so bad in terms of they were off their highs. The Nasdaq, meantime, down 2.4%. But let's put some things into perspective because we are still holding on to some pretty significant gains for the year. All the major averages up double digits. And for that, we have brought in um, Brian Levitt. He's joining me. He is global market strategist at Invesco. Thanks so much for being here, especially before a long holiday weekend. (laughs) Happy to be here. Um, When we look at this market, Take the temperature of this market for us, because it seems to be hot and cold depending on the tweet of the day yeah, on the trade war. Exactly. How significant do you think that really is, or 
do you think there's more at play here in terms of people worrying about a, global, a slowing global economy? Well, it's clear that the global economy has slowed, but we have to ask ourselves, why has the global economy slowed? And the global economy has slowed because of the uncertainty regarding policy. And so investors should expect market volatility around policy uncertainty. What's more worrisome is when you look at business sentiment, new orders, CapEx spending, they've all gone down. And why have they gone down? Because businesses don't think they know the rules of the game. The good news is that can also change with a more positive tone. And that's what we're seeing over the last few days. And last man standing seems to be the U.S. consumer. That has really been The U.S. consumer is, yeah. is the last person standing. Um, low unemployment, wages have been generally good. And, and so the consumer is in decent shape. The talk of the recession. You know, we've had a lot of talk about the talk yeah. of the recession and that we're all talking ourselves into a recession. When you look at things like the slowing of productivity gains, the lack of CapEx investment, does that tend to tell you that, look, 2020 is not going to be a great year for corporate profits and it could really have a slowdown in the economy even if we don't get into recession territory? Well, I, I think that's right, but it's happening right now. So you're already seeing a lot of my favorite leading indicators are getting you're into that. Down. Yeah, they're in those ominous areas, particularly the curve, which of course famously everybody's looking at. So we probably have had the slowdown. The time to be defensive was in the last weeks or so. My expectation is now that the Fed has backed off and the administration is going to go into an election year, you're probably likely to see policies that stabilize the currency, start to bring sentiment up, reinvigorate economic activity. So I would think rates to go up some, and I would expect the cyclicals to outperform amid better policy certainty than the defensives, which have outperformed more recently. Talk to me about this mini rally, though. That This yeah. has caught a lot of people off guard, as did, of course, that bond rally as well. Yeah, I mean, I think people need to realize that the best days and the worst days in the markets almost always group together. So it's very hard to try and time these things. Volatility, the downturn happened because of policy uncertainty. It always does. We saw it in 2011 with the ECB raising rates. We saw it in 2016 with the Fed's rate hike. And we're now seeing it now around trade uncertainty. If investors are going to shift their portfolios they're going to do it at their own peril. Um, in my opinion, the broad stories haven't changed. This is a slow growth, benign inflation world where central bankers are easy. That should support risk assets. The administration's getting a bit in the way, but I believe the administration's going to want to support risk assets in an election year. So this mini rally, we might test where we were again. That volatility, that churn's likely to continue to exist. Ultimately, I think markets are going higher into the end of the year or also into next year? Into the end of the year and into next year. So you're a bull. I'm a bull and I've been, look, I've been on record saying this cycle's going to go on for five more years and five, five more, more years. Five. And, and, you know, there's nothing <laughs> magical about five more years, but when I look at where valuations are, where inflation is, where equity ownership is, none of those things are signaling end of a cycle. And so if the end of the cycle dashboard isn't flashing, but your recession, your recession risks right now are disconcerting, all it means is we need a policy shift, and that policy shift should drive markets higher. Policy shift as in perhaps some kind of a resolution to this trade war, but also a new election, right? An election, pardon yeah. me, on 2020. Does that give you any pause there at all? No, I mean, I've seen markets do well across multiple administrations, across different platforms. So I've said um, for years that hating the government is not an investment strategy, so there's always <laughs> enough people that are there to hate the government. 
Um, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on it because typically what happens is you, you probably don't get single party rule. And even when you did for two years under Obama and two years under Trump, you get one or two big things done and then that's it because then we shift to giving the House or the Senate to a different party. So I don't think investors should be overly concerned. Even when Trump won, you had a very brief period where value stocks won, rates went up. And then we went right back into this slow growth world, rates down, growth stocks outperforming. Before I let you go, into your holiday weekend, global investors, it's been the argument is that the U.S. market is the best thing in town. And for that reason, we will continue to see global money shifting into that yeah. U.S. market. Do you see that at all? I mean, obviously, that's been the case. And it's because, the, you know, with the U.S. being the best growth economy relative to expectations and with the Fed raising interest rates, that's been an environment that's favored U.S. dollar assets. Typically, what you see in an environment where the Fed is backed off its tightening cycle and the U.S. is running pretty large twin deficits, you should expect the dollar strength to stabilize and moderate. And then you've got valuations outside the United States more attractive. But you'll need a catalyst for that. That catalyst, particularly in the emerging markets, should be a better tone between the U.S. and China, China stimulating growth, the Fed easing, that should start to unlock some value in the emerging economies. We'll see. A lot of people have been waiting a very long time Absolutely. for that. Brian, have a great Thank weekend. Thank you so really much. You as well. Here. Thank appreciate you. It. And Take we care. will be right back in a moment. We will have that opening bell for you as, again, stocks on track here uh, to have a good open. to First Move. I'm Paul Newton here live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell on a day that promises to perhaps be lower volume. It is a beautiful sunny day here. People getting ready for that long holiday weekend. As expected, though, we did get that opening that went higher on U.S. stocks. We are on track, in fact, for the best week on Wall Street in just over two months. All of that despite the fact that new U.S. and Chinese tariffs are set to take effect Sunday. Yes, folks, it's already September 1st. Traders hope to soon get some more clarity, though, on when face-to-face trade talks will begin again. They were promised for September. We continue to watch the action in the U.S. bond market, though, too. Such an interesting story for the last few weeks. Yields are holding steady and back above 1.5%. That said, the main U.S. yield curve remains inverted, which is seen and historically seen as a strong recessionary signal. Now, the Trump administration's bold use of tariffs has been part of the trade strategy going forward for this administration. But the top trade advisor to the White House, Peter Navarro, speaking to CNN's Richard Quest, um, in fact said that the tariffs have been used similarly, he claims, throughout U.S. history. And the only reason that China has come to the negotiating table are those tariffs. Take a listen. Certainly the uh, tariffs are are central to the strategy of this administration, and they work uh, in different ways depending on the situation. For steel and aluminum, we had to put tariffs on simply uh, to defend our domestic industries against what was a flood and glut of international uh, imports into this country. In the case of Mexico, for example, uh, when we threatened tariffs, we literally got more done in two weeks on our immigration policy uh, than any previous president done in the last 20 years. And I think, Richard, you might agree with me on this. Um, Absent uh, the tariffs that have been put in place on China, China would never have come 
uh, to the bargaining table and advanced this far in those uh, negotiations. And um, as a fourth element of the strategy, we are seeing on a daily basis um, new investment come in from Japan, from Germany, other places in Europe, particularly in our auto industry, simply because of the concern of these countries over the possibility uh, of auto tariffs. So uh, President Trump uh, is using the tariff strategy, I think, brilliantly. Um, it's a great defense of this country. It has a long history uh, as part of this country in terms of previous presidents. And yes, uh, he's doing it different than any modern president, uh, but certainly not uh, within the context of the broad sweep of American history. And that was, in fact, Peter Navarro, trade advisor to the White House. David Edelman joins me here now on the balcony of the New York Stock Exchange. You are the former U.S. ambassador to Singapore, currently a partner at Reed Smith. And, of course, you worked in Hong Kong as a managing director at Goldman Sachs. Tough days ahead there at Hong Kong, which we'll discuss as well. Right now, though, I want to get to what Peter Navarro said. He's saying, look, if we didn't take this tough stand, if we didn't have tariffs on the table, we'd be getting nowhere with China. Well, that's uh, certainly the White House's theory on trade policy and has been for a couple of years. I suppose I subscribe to the theory that you get more with carrots than you do with sticks. Uh, they've been very, very tough, and it's unclear to me there's been any real material results for the United States. And it certainly has created significant headwinds for the American economy and, in fact, the global economy. Uh, two things I want to pick out from what you said. The first thing is the headwinds. Is this a structural change? I've been asking many people if they believe that going forward, even if we get a trade deal in six months, eight months, that this is going to be a structural change in the way the U.S. economy uh, works with China or doesn't work with China. Well, it's structural in, in the sense that uh, China is perhaps learning a lesson from this and will be less dependent on American exports going forward. They've already moved their economy to a consumption-based economy. And in fact, when you look at the statistics, more than 80 percent of Chinese exports go to markets outside of the United States. So in that sense, I suppose there has been a structural change to the U.S.-China relationship. The question is whether that has been something that will be in the U.S. interest over the long term. And that that is a, a big debate on this. Having said that, uh, where do you think this goes now in terms of that negotiating strategy? And at the heart of this, what does a winning trade deal look like? Is it winning for the United States or can you see something that is win-win? What does it look like? No one has spelled that out. I haven't seen it from the administration yet. Well, that's been the question for about three years. What's the end game for the Trump trade team? Look, um, what they've done has been use a very blunt instrument at a time when the economy uh, has shown some fragility. Uh, the fact of the matter is um, American businesses have been greatly impacted by this. Uh, President Trump now seems to be getting that message. Two weeks ago, he blinked. And I think this week at the G7, it was a full flinch. We saw President Trump um, talking about uh, a warming uh, of relations and, in fact, talking about constructive progress with the Chinese in the negotiations, although there's no real evidence of that. I think what we'll see is the White House is going to back down, especially as we enter fully enter the political season and they recognize the delicacy of the uh, American economy and the fact that American consumers might be hit by the effects of these headwinds of the increased prices to consumers as a result of the tariffs. Some people would be skeptical, though, in saying that they would cave completely. If they've come this far, do, do they not have an obligation to put something on the table that looks like something that no other administration could have gotten or was willing to try and get from the Well, Chinese. I hope it'll be more than just looking like something. He's the president of the United 
United States and should be, I think, aggressively negotiating with our trading partners around the world. You know, whether uh, the president uh, has to do something to save face, you know, that's a political question. And I suppose uh, China will be able to give President Trump something that will allow him to declare victory. But we shouldn't forget uh, that our counterparty also has a domestic audience um, to which he has to uh, consider. Uh, And so President Xi also will want to save face. Uh, The good news is it's in both the interest of the United States and the interest of China, and for that matter, the interest of the global economy, for there to be a fair and predictable uh, longer-term compromise on these important trade terms. Yeah, and we'll see if they can get there. Uh, Dave, before I let you go, the Hong Kong protests uh, continue, very controversial. In terms of your history in Hong Kong, I've been interested to see the editorials that have been coming out of there lately, and that is editorials that are either pro-Beijing or going for the protesters and actually admiring what the protesters are doing, all of them are saying that the way the Chinese government is interpreting this right now is incredibly dangerous. What do you think? Well, I don't know if I would use the word dangerous. Uh, So the, the, the quote here is that they're viewing it as a challenge to national sovereignty, to national security, and a potential threat to the country as a whole. When we say that, we don't mean a threat to Hong Kong, right? We're talking about a threat to China. Yeah, again, I don't know if I would say this is necessarily a threat to China. China is a huge country with its own momentum. Um, This is certainly an important story, and that's why it's on the front page of the newspapers around the world. Hong Kong people, as well as the leaders in Beijing, have a mutual interest in the success of Hong Kong. And that's what makes this challenging for both the demonstrators uh, and the government officials in Hong Kong and the government officials in mainland China. So uh, it's an important story. I don't know if I would call this something that is really dangerous uh, to China, but rather a political issue for China, Hong Kong government, and the Hong Kong people. And a lot to be gained on both sides if they come out of a resolution of this. For sure. Yeah, Dave, thank you so much. So appreciate seeing you and have a great weekend. My pleasure. We head into that long weekend a lot uh, on the trade war next week with those September 1st tariff deadline. Appreciate it. And uh, right now, we are going to go on to those global market movers. Shares of Tesla are up more than 4%. Reports say China says they will exempt several Tesla models models from its auto purchase tax. Tesla also says its Shanghai Gigafactory will begin production in December. Remember, many people were looking for a start date on that. Shares of chipmaker Marvell Technologies are lower. The company's second quarter profits beat expectations. But it says Q3 will be hurt by the U.S. government's restrictions on companies doing business with China's Huawei. Now, shares of Dell rallying more than 10 percent. Second quarter earnings and revenues topped expectations, thanks in part to strong sales of those desktop computers. Remember, everyone's trying to upgrade their windows. Dell is also raising its full year outlook and is looking to raise prices to offset the impact of once again the new tariffs. Shares of Campbell Soup also rallying Q4 earnings easily beat expectations. Sales were lower than Wall Street estimates, but the company says it's on track to deliver good results in this fiscal year. And you are watching First Move. We are here live in the New York Stock Exchange as we continue to have a rally underway. We will be back in a moment with more of First Move. back now to one of our top stories this hour, Hurricane Dorian. It's gaining strength. It's now a Category 2 hurricane already traveling over warm waters that it is expected to crash into the American mainland on Monday evening or Tuesday morning. At this point, it could actually hit as a Category 4, which would make it the strongest hurricane 
to hit Florida since 1992. Chad Myers joins us now. Chad, 1992. Um, I, I really can't believe that that would be the strongest hurricane to hit Florida uh, since 1992. What That's is the, the issue here? Uh, close to Florida, pardon me. Um, no, what the is the Coast. issue here in terms of what you're looking at in terms of this storm track right now? The problem is that this is going to get into a very highly populated area, Paula. In the southern half of Florida, including Miami and Fort Lauderdale and, and all the very big cities you've all heard of, um, even south of Daytona, all millions of people will be in the way of a 220 kilometer per hour storm. Roofs will be gone. The storm surge will approach... Uh, four meters. So if you're less than four meters above the ocean, and many people are because they have canals in their backyard and they have a boat there and their, their house is no more than a meter above sea level, all of those houses are not only going to get smashed by the wind, but they will get flooded as well. Category four, and it's going to get down to about 215 kilometers per hour as it makes landfall, and then it will affect even Orlando. We will have winds there somewhere in the ballpark of 120 to 140 kilometers per hour, but tremendous amounts of rain. Some places will pick up 500 millimeters of rain over the next 72 hours after the landfall. Hurricane Dorian right now is 175 and still getting stronger, and the pressure is still going down. Now, overnight, we got a couple of models that really worked out for us. The Hurricane Hunter aircraft, the f- planes that fly through it and above it, were out there all night long. And that truly helped our forecast. We have now hurricane watches for the Bahamas. But the models are in certain agreement now from all right through where we are, right through the Bahamas and into South Florida. And how that happened, how are the models, because they've been terrible, how did they do so well? Out of the back of these airplanes, they drop these parachutes with these little sensors. And they go to the, all the way down to the ocean, and they sense what the humidity is, what the wind is, what the temperature is. And all of that information goes into the model, the European model and also the American model. It's kind of like a weather balloon, but it goes the wrong way. You know, you put a weather balloon up, and it goes up. This, you drop out of an airplane, and it goes down, but it gets you the same data. And it gets you the same information so that the models can act better. And look at this, simultaneously, just to the north of what we call West Palm Beach, and then changing a little bit, but... That's still 72 hours and they're on the same track. That's amazing. So we're going to see at least 500 millimeters of rainfall across parts of Florida. And it is going to run all the way to Georgia and up to the Carolinas as well. Yeah, Chad, I have seen you in these positions that give us scenarios. You're saying this is pretty much going to be uh, that kind of a track right now for the storm. Okay, Chad, you will continue to keep an eye on this for sure. Thanks for joining us. Up next, could vaping be as bad for you as cigarettes? Amid reports that the FTC is investigating Juul, we look at an industry now under scrutiny. Welcome back. Shares in tobacco giant Altria are recovering ever so slightly, up almost half a percent. The shares took a dive on Thursday, connected to Altria's 35% stake in the e-cigarette maker Juul. Now, it came after reports that the Federal Trade Commission is investigating Juul over its marketing to try and figure out whether the company targeted minors. Now, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission investigation, comes amid increased scrutiny of e-cigarette industry. Doctors are reporting an uptick in cases of severe lung disease, which they say could be caused by vaping. Now, the CDC said last week it was aware of at least 193 possible cases since last June. 
CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, has more in this report. <coughs> that 17-year-old Tristan Zofeld, a previously healthy athletic teen from Texas whose symptoms initially baffled doctors and then took a turn for the worse. His chest x-ray went from having what we would have thought was a little bit of pneumonia to having a complete whiteout of both of his lungs. Look at the striking difference to this other scan of his. When the doctors start telling you that they're worried, then you get worried. I was throwing up everywhere. My heart was just completely pounding, and I really couldn't breathe. We eventually had to put a tube down his throat because his lungs totally failed and were not working. Within 48 hours of being admitted to ICU, they, they had him in a medically induced coma. They had me on this big machine that was pretty much breathing for me. If that didn't work out, then nothing else was going to work out. Doctors at Cook Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth ran a battery of tests looking for what caused Tristan's mysterious illness. But they all came back negative. But then came a possible clue. His cousin came forward and started talking about the fact that they had been vaping up in his bedroom. He immediately went home and grabbed all the vapes and everything, brought it back up to the hospital, showed him, you know, like this, this is what we've been doing. Tristan's case is like many others across the country now being investigated by the CDC, with health officials saying there could be a link between severe lung disease and vaping. We do not know what causes this at this point. The best guess is that it is inflammation within the lungs so that you are not able to breathe. While it's notoriously difficult to prove cause and effect, it's not just lung disease health officials are looking into. The FDA has been conducting another investigation into what could be a link between vaping and seizures. All of this in the midst of what's being called an epidemic of vaping among young people. It doesn't matter if your kid's a straight-A student. It doesn't matter if your kid's, you know, one of the star players on the, the football team. Um, you, you can't be naive to what they are doing. Fortunately for Tristan, after 18 days in the hospital, he is recovering well and is sharing his story because he wants to enlighten other people around his age. I definitely feel like I was given that second chance for a reason. I'm definitely not the only one. I'm just the one spreading the word at the moment. And joining us now, our chief medical uh, correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. You know, so disturbing for a parent. Sanjay, it is so chilling to see him in lung failure there. And we thank the family for, yeah. you know, letting us see all that. It, you know, it's obviously quite stark. Sanjay, what went on here? This was supposed to be an alternative to people who were trying to quit smoking. No one has to tell you and I that there's an epidemic among young people, right? We see it. We see it every day, uh, whether it's outside the high schools or whatever. So what can be done going forward to really try and assess if there is this causal link? Yeah, I mean, look, you're absolutely right. First of all, I have three kids right around that age now, preteens, teens, and it is uh, conversation topic number one, uh, Paula, you know, among, among these kids. And it's, it's remarkable. Two years ago, we weren't talking about this at all. Uh, a city in the United States, Milwaukee, has basically said no more vaping in our city at all uh, because of uh, the concerns here. So what's going on is a little bit hard to, to, to sort of investigate out right now. On one hand, uh, these devices could be effective at helping adults stop smoking. On the other hand, they've become very attractive to young people who may have otherwise never smoked and are using these devices. Is it the vape devices? Is it the e-liquid that goes into these devices? Or is it something else entirely? Sometimes people will put THC, marijuana, cannabis into these devices. Could it be something like that, a synthetic? We don't know, but you know, there was just a few isolated cases uh, a few weeks ago, and now you know, close to 200 cases in 20 states. Everybody has to be paying attention to this.
Yeah, and that's the bottom line. We don't know. We need more medical studies. And in the meantime, what are those e-cigarette companies saying about all this? Well, you know, the, the, the biggest one is a company called Juul. Uh, they, they are, um, you know, they have the lion's share of the market. The headline is that they're still going to keep selling the product for now, but they are very much aware of, obviously, these investigations. Uh, the, the CEO, uh, Kevin Burns, sat down and talked to CBS and, and had this to say specifically. Worrisome. Worrisome for the category. Worrisome for us if we contributed to it. CDC is leading the investigations. We're obviously in close contact with them. If there was any indication that there was an adverse health condition related to our product, I think we'd take very swift action associated with it. And we want to take him at his word is that there would be swift action, obviously, Sanjay, as we continue to investigate exactly what's going on here medically. As always, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you. Really appreciate it. And we move on now to our boardroom brief. Disney says it sold its 80% stake in the Yes Network, a sports network that airs New York Yankees NBA games. It's been brought by an investor group that includes Amazon and the Yankees in a deal valuing the business at about $3.5 billion. Now, Disney picked up the Yes Network when it acquired most of the assets of, you remember now, 21st Century Fox. Chinese ride-hailing giant Didi is taking its hands off the wheel with plans to launch self-driving cars in Shanghai within months. Now, they'll still have a human driver on board, and rides will be free if you choose a self-driving vehicle. Didi wants to expand the scheme internationally, though, by 2021. Now, getting a lot of lover in China. I will tell you what I mean. Taylor Swift has now sold more than a million copies of her latest album there in its first week. Yes, just its first week. That makes her more popular in China than the U.S. Some of her lyrics in Calm Down could appear to be relatable to the current political climate. Take a listen. Say it in the street, that's a knockout. But just say it in a tweet, that's a cop-out. And I'm just like, hey... Whether it's the lyrics or something else, Taylor Swift definitely taking advantage of that China market there. And we here are going to have a quick look at the market here, which is continuing to hold on ever so slowly to a rally here. You see the Dow up about 113 points. But as you can see, the major indices all up uh, almost a half percent. I have to say we are losing some momentum there on the buying. We will continue to watch for that. I want to thank you for watching First Move. I'm Paula Newton. The International Desk with Robin Curnow starts right after the break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.